So if you're joining us today for the first time, uh, we're in the middle of a sermon series where we're studying the words of Jesus in a text of Scripture known as the Sermon on the Mount. And if you've never read the Sermon on the Mount, I encourage you to take some time over this next week, even this afternoon. It's three chapters, very short reading, yet within these short chapters, Jesus gives us such a grand understanding and a beautiful picture of what life should be. That's the title of this series, Life as It Should Be, because we reckon that the way we live is not always the way the way life was intended to be, that there's often a disparity between our existence and God's will for our existence. And as we wrestle with these words of Jesus, our prayer and hope is that our hearts would align with His vision for our life. And so I encourage you to go to the website, hear the previous sermon so you could see where we've been. And today we're going to continue where we left off before we had our guest speaker last week. And we're going to be in Matthew chapter 5, verse 17 to 20. Let's hear the words of Jesus when he says this, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly, I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for the incredible gift, the privilege, the opportunity to sit and listen to your word and come to your word expectant, desirous that you would teach us and speak to us. Holy Spirit, glorify Jesus. Illuminate our hearts to understand the scriptures and to see Jesus clearly. Have your way this morning, Father. May our hearts and love grow in affection for you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen and amen. You know, the last couple of weeks we've talked about a few different themes that have come up from these passages. We've talked about how Jesus wants to transform our inner character. And we, we, when we looked at the Beatitudes and how that translates into our influence in the world, when we looked at Jesus' description of us as being salt and light. But today what I'm really excited about is that if we pay attention Jesus is going to bring much-needed clarity to our understanding of the Scriptures as a whole. You know, one of the things I've loved the last couple weeks, anytime Pastor Denise has announced the Bible study class that's coming, I loved her phrase. She would say, if you're just confused what to do with this book. And, And to be honest, most of us are not honest that the Scriptures can be confusing, that it's hard to process it, and we actually need guidance, tutelage. We need people to show us, to instruct us, and thank God that there's people who have dedicated their whole lives to the vigorous study of Scripture so that the people of God would be equipped and have clarity around the Word. 
And, and this may sound like a shameless plug, take it how you want. That's why we're excited about this upcoming Bible study class that, as I mentioned, I'm attending. I want to be in the room with people opening the Word and studying, and I hope you would too. I can't think of a better investment of your time. And, and maybe perhaps as a precursor to that class, a little taste, an appetizer, if you will, Today, I believe Jesus is going to help clear up a lot of confusion that exists in the world around the Scriptures as a whole. And in fact, some of this confusion may be stuff that you wrestle with and wonder and question. And as we listen to what Jesus says, I believe a lot of much-needed clarity is going to come. Let's begin with this phrase that Jesus says in verse 17, I have not come to abolish the law. Can you say that phrase with me? The law. Oh, say it like you mean it. That's a great phrase. The law. All right. There's a lot of confusion, sadly, when it comes to this phrase, the law, and specifically how the law relates to us today. And what we see in these first couple of verses is Jesus explaining to us his relationship with what we call the Old Testament. If you know the Scriptures, they're divided into two big sections, the Old Testament and the New Testament. And many folks, sadly, erroneously believe that the Old Testament has no relevance for us today, that it's, it's all the only relevant section of the Scriptures is the New Testament. Yet, these verses that we just read contradict that thought. Because look at what Jesus says in verse 17. Don't think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish it, but to fulfill it. And so right there, very plainly, you're hearing Jesus saying, I've not come to do away with anything. In fact, I've come to fulfill it. Yet, some of the most common falsehoods and false doctrines that exist even today tell us that we have no relationship with the Old Testament. In fact, there's literally heresies that date back to the third century that continue to show up today in different expressions that basically say that the Old Testament has no relevance for us today. Yet, what do we hear Jesus say? I didn't come to abolish it. I didn't come to do away with it. I've come to fulfill it. And so Jesus is describing to us his relationship to this huge section of the Scriptures called the Old Testament. So much so that you notice what he says. He says, for truly, verse 18, I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. So Jesus is saying not even like a, a period or a comma, not even the smallest aspect of the law will pass away, will be irrelevant until all is fulfilled. So he's framing something very important. And that's idea of not abolishing the law, but fulfilling it is a very important concept. Can you say that word with me? Fulfillment. Jesus says that he didn't come to abolish the Old Testament law, but he came to fulfill it. And that word fulfillment there in the original language means to draw out, to fill up. Interesting. Jesus says, I've come to draw out 
and to fill up. We're going to understand what he means by that a little bit more. But I think it's important to understand that there are various aspects of the Old Testament that Jesus is speaking to, and we need to understand the proper categories. If you study the Old Testament, you'll find that there is huge sections that talk about sacrifices and a priesthood. And in essence, in the Old Testament, there was a lot of instructions for these people called priests to be able to conduct these sacrifices that were meant as part of the covering of the people of God's sins. These were rituals and ceremonies that were meant to be something that points to the ultimate sacrifice, the ultimate Lamb of God, which is Jesus. And so what what I'm referring to is the ceremonial law. There is an aspect of the Old Testament called the ceremonial law, and then there's an aspect of the Old Testament called the moral law. The moral law is where we get the Ten Commandments, where we get ideas that govern even our society today, rules of fairness and jurisprudence and how to make fair decisions. There are aspects of that law, the moral law, and then there's aspects of the ceremonial law. Without being a biblical scholar, which do you believe Jesus was saying are fulfilled? When you think of if sacrifices and priesthood were pointing to what he ultimately would do, and then there's this moral law that continues to guide our decision-making, right and wrong, which do you think that he might be speaking of? If you pick the ceremonial law, check under your seat. There's a prize for you. No, that is the correct answer, the ceremonial law, where Jesus has not abolished that, but he has truly, completely fulfilled it. He's drawn it out. He's explained it. He's made it clear to us. Think about that for a second. What Jesus tells us, in essence, when we look at what he's done and when we consider what he's saying, he came to fulfill the ceremonial law. He came to be the ultimate final sacrifice that after hundreds, if not thousands of sacrifices throughout the history of Israel, here comes Jesus with one final eternal sacrifice that fulfills, that actually gives the fuller meaning, the fuller context, the fuller understanding. All those sacrifices were incomplete because they had to be done every single year over and over and over again. But Jesus, in one sacrifice, eternally satisfied what those hundreds of thousands of sacrifices could not. And you and I today, when we approach God, we don't approach God with some sacrifice that we bring Him as the basis of our relationship with Him. We approach God based on this final, fulfilled, complete, eternally, once and for all sacrifice that Jesus has accomplished. He has fulfilled the ceremonial and priestly law. I had a friend, I honestly, he's one of my heroes because I can't even wrap my mind around how he did this. Uh, He comes from a Jamaican family. They came to this country uh, many decades ago, hardworking people, um, and he had a dream to become a colorist 
for films. Actually, he's worked on a ton of films. He's an award-winning um, colorist. Uh, incredible story. What most people won't know is that this guy went, I believe he went to Parsons, and there were classes that he sat through, and he would fulfill the assignments. But because his family didn't have the money, and he didn't have scholarships, and sometimes they didn't have the tuition when it was needed, there was in sometimes entire semesters where he was sitting through, doing everything, knowing that if the money didn't come through, it would all be for nothing. And he did it by faith. He sat through classes. Sometimes professors say, hey, why are you here? You haven't paid. He said, no, it's coming. The tuition's coming. And literally, he did this for sometimes entire semesters. And now, fast forward, he graduates, graduated with honors. And, and, and when he told me that story, I just, I couldn't just imagine. I would have been stressed out. I would have not wanted to stay there in that class, feeling like I didn't deserve to be there because I didn't pay my way. And I think of his story because I think of spiritually how many of us struggle to feel like we don't belong, like God doesn't accept us because our struggles, because our shortcomings. And yet, what would it look like to have the confidence to say, oh, no, the payment's coming kind of thing. Like, no, the payment's on my behalf. It's arriving. Don't, I'm not stressed here. It, it, it's been taken care of. And to live in that confidence. Jesus fulfills the law, the ceremonial law. But the law he did not do away with was the moral law, the moral code. He never abolished that. He never wiped it away. And so that's why, though Jesus is the full, eternal, final payment of our sins, Jesus never wiped away the law that points out our sin, that makes us known and aware of when we have transgressed. So what Jesus has done is, if you sin, you can trust in his payment for your sin because he's fulfilled that law, but you and I could never point to Jesus as an excuse to continue to commit sin because Jesus has done away with the law because he has not. He has not abolished the law. The moral code still is in effect. And so what Jesus continues to teach us, and this is a very important contrast that he draws he teaches us in this passage that there's two types of righteousness that exists in the world. There is the righteousness of the Pharisees and the scribes, and then the righteousness that Jesus wants us to have. There's a big difference between these two. And I want you to pay attention because, sadly, more often than not, followers of Jesus, the righteousness that we walk with, is not the righteousness that Jesus wants us to walk with. Sadly, for many of us, unbeknownst, we don't even know, sometimes it's ha happening under the radar, the righteousness that we live in is the righteousness of the Pharisees and the scribes. Here was their righteousness. They came up with a system of how to follow the law, but in their system, it was the law of God, and then there was all these other like caveats and interpretations and applications. And so if you notice, if you read the Bible, in the New Testament in particular, Jesus is always having this tension with the religious leaders. You know what the tension was about? 
They wanted him to live and obey their traditions, their laws, as if it was the same as the law of God. And so they wanted to impose their legalism, their traditions, as if it was the same, on the same level as the Ten Commandments. And Jesus refused. Jesus would not, in our day and age, he would not be a compliant religious person that would just follow the way to make no waves. No, he would fight for truth. He would insist on obeying the truth and not to elevate the traditions of men on the same level as the Word of God. But the Pharisees, interestingly enough, in their system of the law, they were always made out to appear as very religious and righteous. Their righteousness was one that was marked by outward appearances of righteousness. And so you'll read in the Gospels, Jesus will correct them and say, you pray in public very loudly so people could notice you. You give in the most public arenas of the town square so that people could see your generosity. And then Jesus doubles down and sometimes he even says, but your insides are like the tombs of men. They have dead bones in them. He, he pushes against this idea of outward righteousness that has no inner righteousness, no inner transformation. And so what Jesus is explaining to us in these short verses is how the law of God why, the reason why he's not abolishing it and why he came to fulfill it is because its intention was to not to create an outward sense of righteousness, but an inner reality of righteousness. Why this tension is important to figure out and understand is because at times, if we're not clear on the fact that Jesus did not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it, and that the law is still relevant for us today, what happens is that you and I could very easily pick and choose the aspects of God's law that we want to obey versus the ones that we don't want to obey. If you've ever given instructions to young kids, you've seen this play out a thousand times. There's a big difference between what you instruct them to do and what they actually carry out and do. Oh, but I thought, no, 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 that, 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 that was clear as a clean your room meant your room. Do not come out till it's done could not be clearer. And yet I'm seeing you for the fifth time outside of your room. This was clear, but yet they interpret it in various ways. I would love to just highlight that it's only kids that do that, but the fact is we do that. God tells us very clearly in his word, read the Ten Commandments. We should have no other gods before him. We should honor the Sabbath. We should not commit adultery. We should not lie. We should not steal. We should not murder. He gives us very clear instructions. And then here's the, here's the trick that we don't always pay attention to. Jesus doesn't do away with those things. Actually, as we'll read in the Sermon on the Mount, he goes in deeper and he explains 
how he wants us to apply the commandment of not murdering. Because some of you say, oh, that's a great commandment. I've never done that. Actually, wait a couple weeks. You'll realize none of us are getting out clear. None of us are getting out without Jesus just touching our hearts and, and, and making us aware of our deep need of grace. Jesus explains, he fulfills, he draws out the full meaning of the law, pointing to a righteousness that cannot be achieved just through outer behavior. I hear this all the time. I've heard this many times. Gosh, I lost count over the years where people would say something like, oh, we don't have to obey that. That was in the Old Testament. Have you ever heard somebody say that? Notice nobody ever says that about something that's easy. The, the, the things that we say we don't have to obey, that was in the Old Testament, are the things that are very challenging and inconvenient to our desire to be our own gods. But yet, if we read what Jesus is saying, he didn't abolish it. He fulfilled it. He drew out its meaning. He filled it up. He explained it. He quoted the Old Testament often. He spoke about it with authority. He expected his followers to live by it, but not to live by it externally, but to live by it inwardly. And the price that he paid was so heavy for this inner righteousness to be a reality for us that he hung on the cross, brutally murdered, an eternal sacrifice. He fulfilled the ceremonial law so that you and I could be empowered to fulfill the moral law. Jesus died for you, your sins and mine so that you and I could be empowered to obey the law. Through Jesus, as his follower, you have the resources that are necessary to obey the law of God. If you're a follower of Jesus, if he's Lord over your life, the Scriptures tell us the Holy Spirit lives inside of you, and now you have the full resources of the Godhead inside of you, empowering you to fully obey. And so what grace does for us, it takes away the idea of us thinking we could ever earn our place at God's table, but it also takes away our excuses from obeying God's Word an inner righteousness. I heard a story of this person that had a lot of means, and they chose to dine and dash. Are you familiar with that idea? Dine and dash, some of you are like, what is that? You actually go to a restaurant, you sit, you order food, and then before the bill comes, you run out, and you don't pay for it. Some of you are like, oh my gosh, that's awful. And at this stage of my life, I ain't about to do that, you know, get... Of all the things to get arrested for, that, you know, what? <laughs> I just can't remember. Anyway, just imagine him being in the precinct, you know, what are you in here for? Yeah, I was hungry, and it was Panera, it's that Panera bread, and I didn't want to pay the bill, you know? But the, the insanity of the story was they had the resources to pay, and they chose not to. And I thought of us. We have the resources to obey. And often we choose not to. 
And what results is that we're left with an outer righteousness rather than the inner righteousness that Jesus desires for us to have. Look at what Jesus says in verse 19. I'm going to focus the rest of our time on two words that he says, and then we'll close. Verse 19, look at what Jesus says. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. I want to talk about relaxing the law and greatness in the next few moments. Verse 19, Jesus says that whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. That phrase, relaxes, is a very scary, convicting phrase. Because if there's a phrase that describes the human heart, accurately, it's that one. It's important for you and I to know that our default tendency, apart from the intervention and help of the Holy Spirit, is to take the Word of God that's at this standard and bring it down here. That's our default. That's our tendency to relax, to lessen the intensity of it. If God's law is high beams, we say, no, turn that down. I need to be able to look at it in a more comfortable place. Why that's important is because we live in a time of history that's not unlike other periods of history, but in particular ways, it manifests in specific ways where we hear what God says and we relax it. And we make excuses and justifications. One of my favorite words and least favorite words is the word nuance. Why it's one of my favorite words is because there's things in Scripture that definitely need nuance. You realize when you open the Bible, it's the equivalent of you hopping on a plane and flying to a country from a totally different culture, and while you were on that plane, the time changed. You did time travel when you went to centuries earlier. The Bible is a cross-cultural document. It's not something that you and I could read just with our modern lens without some guidance and some help. There's a lot of stuff to wrestle with. And so we need nuance. But why it's my least favorite word is because in these days when I hear the word nuance, it's often followed by compromise. We need to have nuance in how we understand the Scriptures and then follow that. It's typically, so then this no longer means that, it means this. Jesus is saying that whoever relaxes the law and teaches others to do the same will be least in the kingdom of heaven. Notice he doesn't say you'll be kicked out of the kingdom because you're saved by grace and grace alone, but he says you'll definitely be least in the kingdom if you relax his law and you teach others to do the same. What does relaxing the law of God look like? It looks like lessening the sense of holiness and righteousness that God has 
and making God fit more with our culture rather than confronting our culture with who God is. Jesus doesn't neatly fit within our culture because there's certain things in our culture that he would adamantly push against because it would give a veneer of outward righteousness. I know folks that their sense of outward righteousness, and perhaps you've met them, is recycling. No joke. I remember I was in Seattle. It was the most terrifying thing to ever have to throw out the garbage because I went to throw out something and it was going to go in the wrong basket, and all of a sudden a swarm of people, no, 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 don't do it. I said, oh my gosh, it's just a banana. Uh, What's going on? No, it has to go in this one. And those folks will report neighbors if they don't think they're recycling correctly. It's intense. Now, if you're a recycler here, I love you, but that kind of intensity, we should talk. That's, that's a lot of stress <laughs> to be living under that kind of intensity. But imagine the judgment of people are, is, this, is that outward standard. Are you recycling? Yet those same, some of those same folks, I knew a guy. He was adamant about recycling, yet he was deeply racist. And so it's like, how do those two things combine? Inwardly, you're filled with hate. And yet outwardly, you think you're a good person because you saved some trees. We do the very same things that the Pharisees did. We create these outer codes of righteousness in order to justify and explain away the corrosion in our hearts when we relax the law. I know this is going to sound intense. One of the things, I wasn't planning on saying this, and so I hope. One of the things that I have been wrestling with a lot is the, the, the vibe in our culture, especially for church leaders, that there's a need to immediately respond to issues. Meanwhile, if you look at church history, they had a lot of contentious things they debated, and yet there's only a handful of confessions over thousands of years. What did they do? They thoughtfully, slowly, prayerfully had conversations about things. And then they came to a consensus. I'm going to unpack this. Next week, I'm going to share an announcement and reflection again, uh, about the court decision, Roe v. Wade. But I'm going to warn you, it's not going to give a full explanation. Here's why, because we're going to have a fuller conversation as a church and we're going to pray through it, and we're going to look at the Scriptures, and we're going to wrestle with it. You're not going to get a soundbite. And for me, one of the, te- the temptations I've had to resist is that I don't pastor a church on the Internet. I pastor you guys. And so the tendency is to post something and say, oh, he said something. Like if posting something is actually doing anything, I want to pastor you guys. I want to make sure that we are wrestling faithfully with the Scriptures But here's one thing that, and one of the reasons why, thank you, my brother. And so here's one of the reasons why I've been slow to say anything about this is because you don't want me to bleed out my thoughts, my emotions, my feelings. We want to go to the Scriptures together. And one of the reasons why I needed some time is because one of the first reactions I heard about the overturning is that now it'll be more difficult for people to terminate children that have Down syndrome. And do and, and you know how that sounds? This is a complex issue. 
I'm sharing that to not polarize anybody because you're going to hear, we're going to have a very balanced, thoughtful conversation because I truly empathize with what women are feeling. As a man, I don't know what you're going through, but I conceptually, I have a daughter, I have a wife. I, I conceptually, I can't even imagine what some of this sounds like to you. And we're going to wrestle with Scripture faithfully in a way that I hope makes both sides on this conversation uncomfortable. Because I think Jesus has something to say to both sides of these conversations. But I share that story, that, that personal thing, because I wrestle with the idea of how callous we could become at the thought of since Roe v. Wade, 60 million babies have not seen life. 60 million. Aside from the conversation, and we're going to have the fuller conversation about women's rights and, and their bodies and all these things that are important that are not to be dismissed, and the bigger conversation of not just being pro-birth, but fully pro-life, but just wrestle with the fact that we could be in a place where we relax the law of God so much that the concept of 60 million human beings not seeing life doesn't mess with us. That should prick our hearts. But it won't if we relax the law, if we lessen what the law of God means and how it's understood and how we apply it. But look at what Jesus says, and we'll close with this. He didn't just say that teaching people to relax the law, to not obey it, would make you least. He actually told us what would make us great. It says, for I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. These are his last words of this passage. But before he says that, after he says what makes you least in the kingdom of heaven, relaxing the law and teaching others to do the same, he says, whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. I love the fact that Jesus, and it may not be apparent at first, but in one swooping statement, Jesus actually answered some of the deepest questions and the longings and the pursuits of human beings across the ages, and that is the desire to be great. People build enormous skyscrapers. They push themselves to physical limits in sports, in academics, they, the, the rigors of their mind, they train themselves in order to be the best thinkers in whatever category, or in, in all sorts of ways in this life, we try to catalog and track anything we can that lets us know, are we great, whether it's likes or Yelp reviews, whether it's income or where we live or how great our children are. We're all trying to track and assess and be able to label ourselves as great. We're pursuing it. We want to be great, even if the pursuit of greatness is not like a big platform or, or, or notoriety. We want to have significance, and yet Jesus tells us the surest, most complete understanding of greatness 
Greatness is complete conformity to the will of God. Obeying God's word. All other paths, all other promises of greatness will leave you longing and never satisfied. I think it was near his deathbed, they asked Rockefeller, because he had all this money. He said, how much more money do you need? You have so much. He said, just a little bit more. we're, We're never satisfied in whatever pursuit that we have to try to determine our greatness, and yet Jesus sets us free from all of that and says, you want to be great. Greatness is defined this way, obeying my word, fully living into my will for your life. That's what greatness is. As the worship team comes forward, I wonder if this is a moment for some of us to do some wrestling with God. If perhaps in your life, there are spaces in your soul where you have been relaxing the law of God. You know God says this, but you've been interpreting as that, and you know you're on that slippery slope. Or perhaps you've been pursuing greatness in all these other ways, and yet Jesus clearly defines for us, greatness is obeying my law, obeying my word. And the good news for us is that whether you are fully obedient or struggling to obey, our place at God's table is not determined by that. The righteousness that Jesus says, this inner righteousness is only accomplished through his spirit at work in us. And we obey from a place of love. We don't obey in order to be loved. That's the invitation that we have from Jesus. And I could invite us to stand as we prepare to receive communion. Each of you as you came in should have received the elements of communion. If you did not, you could just raise your hand and someone will come by. With the wafer in hand, 1 Corinthians 11, chapter, verse 23, Paul the Apostle says, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's come and receive the broken body of Jesus. Lord, we remember your sacrifice. We remember your broken body. In the same way, also he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Thank you for your shed blood, Jesus, the sacrifice that you've made. 
you fulfilled the law, the ceremonial law. We no longer have to sacrifice because your sacrifice eternally satisfies. We thank you for it. Let's receive the cup. us to raise our hands in the presence of God as we respond in these next few moments in worship and song and prayer I want to remind you that in the back to my right and your left the prayer team is waiting for anyone that would like to receive prayer you can simply slip out of your seat go to the back and receive prayer for any of the words that were shared earlier if there was any resonance with any of those words go and receive prayer and see how God can meet you but anything that you need prayer for, anything that you're carrying, please go to the back and receive prayer over these next few moments. Let's worship God together.